episode 260, the latest Shkreli Awards for the worst examples of profiteering and dysfunction in the healthcare industry. Today, I speak with Shannon Brownlee and Vikas Sani, MD, from the Loan Institute. American healthcare entrepreneurs and executives you want to know. Talking. Relentlessly seeking value. The Shkreli Awards are published each year by the Loan Institute. This is a much anticipated top 10 list of the worst examples of profiteering and dysfunction in the healthcare industry. The list is named for Martin Shkreli, that price-hiking pharma bro I'm sure you've heard about because he is so easy to vehemently dislike. The Loan Institute, in case you have not heard of them, is spelled L-O-W-N, and it is a nonpartisan think tank advocating for a just and caring health system. Today, I speak with Shannon Brownlee, who is a senior VP at the Loan Institute, and Vikas Sani, MD, president and CEO over there. And we talk about this year's Shkreli Award winners. There are 10 winners, and we talk about most of them in the show today. But just so no one feels left out, there were three that we didn't really get to. So let me mention them here. Number eight are the 35 people, including nine doctors, charged with fraud for billing Medicare $2.1 billion, that's billion with a B, dollars for unnecessary and expensive cancer DNA tests. The doctors enticed seniors and disabled patients to have genetic testing done, and then they received kickbacks from telemedicine companies and genetic testing labs. Editorializing a little bit here, besides the $2.1 billion that taxpayers needed to front for these guys. Also, now I'm sure insurance carriers are putting prior auths in place before people can get time-sensitive oncology DNA tests, for example. Thanks, guys, for making that a thing. Number six is as follows. Pediatric cardiologists at the University of North Carolina Medical Center were alarmed by the high mortality rate of pediatric heart surgery patients at the center. When the cardiologists expressed their concerns, they were told by administrators that if they stopped referring children to the surgery program, they could lose their jobs. And number five, the Sackler family, the owners of Purdue Pharma, New court documents showed that Dr. Richard Sackler encouraged atrocious marketing techniques of OxyContin, including diverting blame for opioid abuse onto addiction victims. So now let's talk about the other seven winners. My name is Stacey Richter, and this podcast is sponsored by Aventria Health Group. Shannon Brownlee and Vikas Sani, welcome to Relentless Health Value. Thank you. Thanks very much. This year's Shkreli Awards have just come out. I'm sure that most people listening to the show have heard of Martin Shkreli and have gotten the general gist of what the Shkreli Awards are. But does one of you want to express what they are? You know, Martin Shkreli became famous because he was a CEO of Turing Pharmaceuticals. He took a drug, Daraprim, and raised it, its price by like 50x, something like that. 
And then he got called the pharma bro and the most hated man in America, et cetera. And it turns out he actually ended up getting convicted and going to jail, but not for anything he did in healthcare. It was for securities fraud. But he certainly became the poster child for profiteering in healthcare. And, and that's why we've embraced his persona. So I'm going to presume that the Shkreli Awards do the opposite of celebrate those who profiteer in healthcare, take advantage of the system for their own gain at the expense of patients and or taxpayers. Oh no, we are definitely celebrating their bad behavior. We are, <laughs> you know, we are highlighting it for sure. The thing about Shkreli is that some of what he was doing with this drug, other companies were doing the same thing. And so in some ways that is the model for how we've been choosing winners. The examples we're choosing are simply the most egregious, but this is very common behavior within the healthcare system. People who view the Shkreli Award should be aware that we're just showing the cream of the crop. <laughs> we, have, we have a much larger pool from which we've chosen these. So many bad actors, so few awards to give. <laughs> I'm laughing, it's not funny. And the idea here is reputational standing in healthcare as in other industries it is kind of a big deal. People will do things in the darkest of night that they don't think anyone will find out about that they would not do if they thought that they might be outed. So the objective is, is to kind of curb the most egregious of this bad behavior by spotlighting it. Yes, and I'd go further. I mean, in some ways, Healthcare in general and this and the kind of profiteering that we point to and spotlight in the Shkreli Awards is really turbocharged by what I would call the halo effect. The halo effect of caring, healing, taking care of you, your family, all the stuff we see in the PR and marketing materials of everybody. I mean, everybody in healthcare. And I'm not saying, you know, there's not a component of genuineness to it because there is. That's why I went into medicine myself. But part of what's going on is that halo effect is really leveraged in a way that, you know, generates some of these outrageous behaviors. And it's that combination, I think, that, that's really important to understand. So that's part of what we're trying to do, demystify some of that halo effect. Let me give you a, a concrete example here. So um, Dignity Health is a multi-hospital system, and their mission statement says, we endeavor every day to keep our patients happy, healthy, and whole. Hello, human kindness. I love that part. Because the example from Dignity Health was that they used a technicality to force a $900,000 medical bill on a new mother whose child was born prematurely. She was not told that her medical care, the child's medical care wouldn't be covered. And the, the really awful irony is that she was an employee of the company. So it's this mismatch between the kind of mission statements, which I, I would bet that almost everybody working at Dignity Health looks at and says, yeah, that's what we're all about. We're all about human kindness. And then somehow this not very kind behavior has been normalized to be able to charge a mother $900,000. Especially one that works for your own company. Yes. That's kind of a very lovely segue into the 2019 Shkreli Awards, which you have handed out. You could kind of break down the winners, if you will, into four categories. And one of them you've identified is this schizophrenic compartmentalization such as Dignity Health, the example that you just named, where you've got a mission statement that says one thing, and then you've got you know behavior that is 
diametric opposite. Who else would you think of the award winners this year might fall into that schizophrenic compartmentalization category? Well, I think in some ways, almost all of them, certainly hospitals. And we have this year, we seem to have quite a few hospitals. I should say that the way we do our awards is really based on public reporting in the news media. So we're not doing any investigative journalism of our own. We're really looking at what's been out there and what's been published. This year, it seems that the news beat for hospitals was a lot more active. You know, the schizophrenic compartmentalization is really about the fact that in large organizations, you know, very complex organizations, you know, everyone sort of may coalesce around a a good feeling about their mission, but then different parts of the organization have different functions. And, you know, I've been involved with business enough to know, you know, you have somebody who's in charge of collections, their job is to get the damn money. (laughs) And that's what they do. And you want someone who does it well. So I get that. But I think in healthcare in particular, what happens is quite often senior leadership gets confused a little bit about how to parse the business side and the mission side in a way that can actually uphold you know, their core values. And our view, our fundamental view, is that it is possible to do that. You know, It is possible to do that, but it takes focus and it takes a willingness to recognize the pitfalls. If everybody just operates on a sort of business as usual mindset, then these things will happen and one part of the organization may do one thing and another part something else. You had mentioned the number of hospitals appearing on the list this past year, which we'll get into in a second. But I wonder if that that also has any correlation to the Edelman Trust Barometer, which came out for 2018, that showed hospitals having a It was a gigantic plummet in trust this year. Absolutely. I I think it's actually a bit older than that. So we saw some focus group data three or four years ago, so several years before the data you're citing. Even then, the rank order of people's antipathy was, I can't remember, number one, pharma, I think, pharma companies, number two, private health insurance companies. And then coming up, Behind those two, for the first time, was the hospital sector. And this was, you know, quite a few years ago. So I think this is a slow-burning trend that's now reaching a stage where it's become visible. It's kind of above the water. I think people in America are really feeling the strain and are starting to look for why this is happening and to whom and, and by whom. Because what they're feeling is a strain on their pocketbooks and on their sense of dignity and everything else in between. Yeah, for sure. I mean, hospital pricing has gone up. I think it was 58% in the past, since 2009, I think I just saw the other day. Okay, so let's talk about the four hospital adjacent or hospitals that are on the Shkreli Awards in 2019. The number one winners was really this group, and it includes UVA Medical Center, Carlsbad Medical Center, Methodist Le Bonheur, Ballad Health, Poplar Bluff uh, Regional Health. It is almost invariably nonprofit hospitals that are cited here. What we're talking about in the the list of hospitals aforementioned, what all of those have in common, all of these nonprofits have in common, 
is that they were aggressively suing patients. I interviewed Marty McCary on the show. He cited a number of stats relative to who was actually getting sued. And I think the top echelon of people getting sued worked at Walmart. And the next rung, postal workers. And then the next rung were actually people who worked at those health systems, similar to the new mother example that you gave. So it wasn't that these hospitals were chasing down people for their plastic surgery bill. You know, they were suing people in the community for garnishing wages for $1,000 or something that you would think would be in the mission of a nonprofit. You know, the, the classic line, no margin, no mission, seems to be an excuse for all sorts of behaviors. I think it forces all of us to get sober about what it is we got to do here. You know, so this idea of nonprofit health systems sort of having this compartmentalized thinking, on the one hand, they got to be tough business people, and on the other, you know, they're providing compassionate care. You know, that kind of problem is partly due to the fact that they feel constrained by the rules of the current system. And in the current system, you get this behavior of suing these people who really can't afford it, who are struggling already. If those are the rules of the game and they're going to play by them, this is the outcome you get. At the risk of sounding like a dreamer, I'll say that I'd love to see a different model. I'd love to see these hospitals, all of these. And I'd like to see them get together you know, in a conference and say, look, we don't want to be doing this. Be citizens for once, and why not get together and figure out how you're going to fix this problem at the public level? Because I think your own communities would applaud you for that. There's some talk in the health policy world that the solution to this problem of not-for-profits enjoying their tax benefits and behaving like for-profit systems is to make them all for-profit systems. This is not the right way to do this. Not if the fundamental problem here is that prices are much too high for people to afford, they're underinsured, they're not able to pay their bills, and suing people who work at Walmart is squeezing, squeezing blood from a stone. We have to really rethink how we pay hospitals and how much we pay hospitals. This could all circle back to, I think it was Adam Grant, who in one of his books wrote, individuals are far more empathetic than organizations. You know, like organizations can spiral into really bad behavior in really non-human, non-empathetic ways really fast and then convince themselves it's kind of like groupthink in a bad way. So maybe it's a bit like that. And, and the issue that these hospitals are experiencing are basically issues of larger organizations that might not have a dominant enough culture to keep all of the various left and right hands aligned on that mission that the marketing department so clearly trumpets. Let's look at, you know, one particular case where the director of a heart-lung transplant program at Newark Beth Israel Medical Center in New Jersey told hospital staff to keep a patient alive for seven months, even after his unsuccessful transplant surgery came out of the surgery in a vegetative state. They did that because hospital transplant programs are judged on 
yearly on the basis of how many of their patients, their transplant patients, are still alive at the end of the year. There are recordings of the conversation where they made this decision, where the department made this decision, where clearly they knew this was the wrong thing to do. They did not even consult the family to see what the family wanted to do. They hid it. They kept the guy alive. They fed the family some kind of a story. And they knew that was ethically wrong. Why did they do it? Because the institution puts pressure on them to some degree because the metrics that are used to judge these transplant programs puts pressure on the system. It puts economic pressure on the system and groupthink took over. So you're absolutely right. There's this this acceptance of bad behavior by individuals within the context of the institution. Organizations like this that are essentially top-down institutions are going to need to get much more feedback from their customers, their communities, and others. And that feedback has to have teeth. I'd like to put in a plug for the free press. These stories all came out in the press. It is essential that we have a press that's able to keep pushing on the system and keep exposing things in the system. It costs a lot of money to do these kinds of investigative stories, and we can't know that this is happening without people finding out about it. So we've talked about hospitals behaving badly. We've talked about schizophrenic compartmentalization. Another maybe category of winners this year are ones around organizations who have been bought out or backed by private equity. You know, some of my best friends are venture capitalists. But, you know, look, I think that what we're seeing here, you know, maybe it's also a late cycle from a business cycle point of view, a late cycle phenomenon. Money's been cheap. There's a lot of money out there. In that sense, you know, coming full circle, Shkreli is the poster child. I mean, he's a hedge fund guy. He just sees an arbitrage opportunity and takes it. It's perfectly legal. Jack up the price 50, 50x, not 50%, 50x. Some guy was quoted as saying it's his moral duty to raise prices, which is sort of Adam Smith run amok in my view. This is a serious problem in the sense that private equities sole driver is their their return for themselves, their shareholders. But the real thing that we're seeing more of, or at least it's being reported more, people outside of healthcare are starting to see this opportunity and they're diving right in. What we're actually seeing, I think behavior that, that's pretty unconscionable. For me as a physician, the, the one that really struck me the hardest was this idea that, you know, you have these doctor networks that are owned and run by private equity companies where the business model is surprise billing. I mean, that is the business model. And anything short of that almost certainly wouldn't make their numbers work. And so they make sure they're out of network. They make sure they're not providing, they don't have contracts with any companies, insurance companies. And they make sure they got as close to a monopoly in a region as possible. Once those conditions are set, they can charge whatever the hell they want. That's one thing. It's another thing entirely when they then decide to take their extra money and be sure that when the consequences of this behavior start bubbling into the public mind and people start talking about legislation, that they spend millions of dollars lobbying to defeat that legislation. Let's talk about a really egregious example. Does one of you want to see that up? This is a case of a for-profit system, the Acadia healthcare system. Their Tampa Bay Behavioral Health Unit is now under investigation for conspiring to hold patients unnecessarily in order to make more money. 
There are other examples of Acadia sites doing things like using drugs as punishment for children who are in the um, facility. Fight clubs created in the facilities for youth. Sexual abuse of young patients. I mean, these are this is all just incredibly awful behavior towards people with mental illness and especially towards young people and children with mental illness. What can you say about this kind of behavior? And then we also have the Carlisle Group, which invested in Manor Care nursing home chain that was doing similar things with one of our most vulnerable populations, you know, people who can't complain when they've got infected pressure sores that no one's taking care of. Moving on, there's a couple of other winners this year, which maybe we can categorize as not necessarily institutional bad behavior, more like individual bad behavior. Does one of you want to talk about potentially our opioid kingpins and or some of the oncology or the one oncology example? There's like no substitute really for just a moral compass. Uh, You know, I think that in the case of Dr. Jose Baselga, I mean, the issue is not that it's wrong to be working at a cancer drug company. You know, that's perfectly reasonable. We need cancer drugs. It's certainly not wrong to be a chief medical officer at Memorial Sloan Kettering, right? So each of these pieces in and of themselves are okay. But when you combine them and then hide it, it's kind of like, dude, what, what were you thinking here? Because it's really about trying to have your cake and eat it too. And I think that's really the issue. I'm not sure there's any law or any rule or any reorganization that in and of itself can fix this kind of behavior, though clearly conflict of interest rules, you know, enforced would matter. But, you know, Sloan had conflict of interest rules, but somebody skirts them. And I'd say the same is true for the doctors at Newark Beth Israel, you know, and keeping that patient alive in a vegetative state. I mean, at some point, you just have to say, look, I cannot do this. And everybody has a different threshold for that, clearly. But culturally, we are at a moment where it seems clear for a lot of people that that threshold is extremely high and they'll do, you know, as much as they can until somebody else stops them. Fraud is fraud. That's just illegal. And, and, you know, we just need more enforcement and we just need more people being held to account. And I think if more people are held to account and more people face serious consequences, that'll be one brick in the edifice of, of trying to curb this kind of behavior. The conflict of interest issue in the case of Dr. Baselga is also more complicated in this sense. Conflict of interest which is when physicians and researchers are have financial relationships with manufacturers, with drug companies and with medical device companies. They have these financial relationships and there's a large body of evidence that says when you're getting money from a, a drug company, when you're getting money from a medical device company, it ends up biasing your research, it ends up biasing your opinions, and it ends up biasing how you portray various drugs and devices to your colleagues. Despite this large body of research, there is still a pretty big contingent of researchers and physicians who say there's absolutely nothing wrong with financial conflicts of interest. This is a fight that's been going on inside healthcare and inside medicine and inside research for probably more than a decade. The case of Dr. Baselga is just, it's that he got caught fibbing about how much money he was taking. And it was a huge amount of money. That's the other part. 
the fact that it's really quite commonplace for researchers and physicians to be having financial relationships with manufacturers is the bigger underlying problem here. And we're not really talking about it that much in the popular press. It certainly gets a lot of play on Twitter in waves. It's certainly talked about in the medical press, in the medical journals. But I don't think most patients understand how much this problem, this problem of conflict of interest has actually distorted everything from the medical research that ends up being the treatments that they get to FDA decisions about what gets approved and what doesn't get approved. Oncology is particularly impactful or... uh, Troubling. Yeah, oncology is a particularly troubling area where this happens because, A, the cost is really high to patients as well as taxpayers, employers, those that are footing the bill. And obviously the stakes are really high. So if a drug winds up getting approved, that winds up, you know, bankrupting a family and it doesn't work really well and it wound up getting approved or was used due to potentially a overly enthusiastic researcher. Well, the consequences also include dying. I mean, the case of Vioxx is the perfect example where um, Vioxx got approved. Well, I'm thinking it's, it was probably back in the late 90s. The way the, the key paper reporting the results of the research that led to the approval was reported, it hid the fact that this drug increased the risk of heart attack and stroke. Many of the people who wrote that paper were either actually employees of the drug company that manufactured it or were receiving financial, they were getting paid by the company, even though they were independent, quote unquote, independent researchers. And that drug went on to kill 60,000 people until it was finally pulled from the market. So this problem of conflict of interest and how it biases how research is done, but also how research is reported and then how things are, are approved um, by the FDA has, has life and death consequences as well as financial consequences for people. The case of cancer, I mean, the stakes are high. You said, yeah, the emotional stakes, the emotional stakes are so high. Death is one of the major things that you know, people are confronting in this moment. And so it is, I think, an even greater responsibility on the part of clinicians and the healthcare system as such to really and truly be careful and judicious in what they are recommending, because it is so easy to sell snake oil and charge a lot for it. The people who say, you know, conflicts don't matter because I'm even-handed in my thinking, they don't really get it, or it's politically not expedient for them to get it. There's a couple that we didn't get to. Is there anything just kind of like wrapping up, putting a capstone on the list that either of you want to comment on before we sort of move to maybe what's your advice? Anything else to add on our award winners? Did we miss something in particular? Well, the genetic testing one, but that's just plain old fraud, really. Yeah, to me, fraud is just that, you know, that's something, that's a fact of life. Certainly, we want to try to root it out, but it, it's not the biggest problem in healthcare. It's, it's bad behavior that's perfectly legal and everybody thinks it's okay. That's the bigger problem. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. Let's wrap this up here. What's your advice? I mean, we talked about transparency a little bit, that there are is an amazing free press in this, in this country. And if you do something long enough, eventually you're going to get called out. And that might be potentially very disastrous for your reputational standing, which obviously also translates into money. So the idea of transparency, it's, it's a thing that time has come. 
But what advice might you have for individuals who are out there trying to do the right thing, given the lessons that we might take away from these Shkreli Award winners? Wow, there are so many possibilities here. But one of them is that we need real transparency around hospital behavior. And we don't yet have that. We, we certainly have some hospital rankings out there that say something about what hospitals are doing, but they're not looking at some of the things that we're talking about here, which is what's the behavior vis-a-vis poor patients who can't pay. How much are you paying your CEO? Things that actually really matter to communities. What we need, I think, is a way of rating hospitals that not only looks at things like how good are you at this particular surgery, but also how well are you treating your community? I was thinking about your question, and I think that we need teeth and we need consequences for this behavior. But first of all, we need to sort of visit the rules. Like we've been saying repeatedly on this show that the scandal is that most of these behaviors are perfectly legal. So I think we have to start asking ourselves, how can we adjust the playing field so that it's just that much harder to behave this way? And I think it's going to be a combination of how we pay for care, who gets to decide what's important in care. And in both of those cases, transparency with the public is, I think, going to be critical. But transparency alone is really not going to solve it unless and until there is much greater public capacity to call these behaviors to account. And right now, you know, we're not seeing that. So we have to think hard about how to do that. It could be some new laws, but I think more importantly, it might be through some new ways of funding healthcare and from that point on, monitoring it and monitoring the data around it. So there's a lot of work to do, but I think the payoff would be huge for everybody. As a mentor of mine used to say, you can't legislate the heart. And I think yes. that's, mm-hmm. that really is the, the core of the challenge here. Yes. The article is online at loaninstitute.org slash Shkreli hyphen 2019. Does one of you just want to maybe recap what the Loan Institute does when you're not finding Shkreli Award winners? Yeah, the Loan Institute is a think tank, and, and we're dedicated to finding bold ideas that are going to transform the healthcare system. We're interested in a lot of different things. We're interested in accountability first and foremost, and that's really what the Shkreli Awards a highlight. Uh, we're very interested in, in what's increasingly called low-value care and the quality and cost product of care because we think there's a ton of care that really isn't adding much value in terms of quality or quantity of life. We're very interested in health equity. And most importantly, I think our background coming out of Dr. Lowndes clinical work and his years you know, in Boston, Harvard, and the Brigham it's really on the human connection, on the fact that fundamentally healthcare is and needs to be a relationship-based activity. And if anything, our view is that it's rapidly become and increasingly dysfunctionally become a transactional activity. There's a lot more there, but our website, launinstitute.org, has, has more information. Shannon Brownlee and Vikas Sani, MD. Thank you so much for being on Relentless Health Value today. Thank you. Thank you. Our pleasure. 
Links to everything discussed on the program today can be found at RelentlessHealthValue.com. If you visit the website, RelentlessHealthValue.com, you will also find a complete listing of all of the shows that we have published thus far with leading entrepreneurs and executives in the healthcare space today. Another cool feature is, you know, you can subscribe to the show so that every week the episode is automatically sent to you so you don't have to remember to go to the website to download it. Thanks so much for listening.